there really is no historic precedent where a woman where um, uh, hospitals have been so thoroughly and apparently deliberately targeted uh, as in Syria. Everything uh, has been turned to, to white because of dust. Dust everywhere. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear any voice. Yeah, when you ask me that question, I can just picture the fear in his face. As Syria enters its ninth year of conflict, doctors are struggling to provide healthcare to a badly damaged country. While dealing with medicine shortages, mass casualties, and everything that comes with working in a war zone, healthcare facilities and their staff are also facing an unprecedented number of targeted and often repeated attacks. According to a new report, there were 257 recorded attacks on hospitals, medical transportation, and healthcare workers in Syria in 2018. And despite these attacks being illegal under international law, they are becoming the new normal. But what is it really like to work under these conditions? To try and find out, I spoke with two doctors who have worked in Syria during the war, and a leading human rights lawyer who has been working to improve the protection of conflict health workers. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Elizabeth Mahays, clinical reporter here at the BMJ. The first story I'm going to tell is that of Dr. Ferris Fares. Uh, I'm Ferris uh, Fares. I'm originally a physician, a gynecologist uh, from inside Syria. I've been graduated uh, from Aleppo University uh, at 2007. Uh, and finalized my specialization in gynecology in also University of Aleppo uh, at 2012, after uh, one year of the beginning of the crisis in Syria. Ferris is a gynecologist who trained at Aleppo University and loves his specialty. In his words... I've studied for 12 years because I like my specialty. I like to be a gynecologist. I like to deliver... I like to do a C-section inside today, uh, operation. But Ferris is no longer practicing. In 2015, he left his home country of Syria just a few months after surviving an airstrike on the hospital he was working in. Speaking to me from Gaziantep, Turkey, near the Syrian border, he told me about that fateful day. He was going about his normal routine. He finished up surgery, spoke to the receptionist, checked the rotor, and as soon as he could, headed to get some rest in the call room. I don't remember the, the, the time. At that time, it was uh, afternoon. Uh, they, everything uh, has been turned to, to white because of dust. Dust everywhere. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. I, I I tried to stand up, so I suffered that uh, I'm inju- injured in my arm. I saw that uh, the, uh, the a part of uh, our hospital uh, has been totally destroyed. It was the part of uh, the uh, ICU department in that hospital at that time, intensive uh, care unit inside the hospital. Uh, 
So it was like I have been shocked that everybody inside the hospital is scaling from the hospital, even the uh, even uh, the patient that I have delivered uh, one hour ago. She is trying to escape from the hospital. Uh, I really, it, it was really hard time. It was a really hard moment, I have to say. And uh, actually, I, I'm always saying to, my, to myself that uh, I have been born again at that time. So, yeah, we say in Arabic, Alhamdulillah. Ferris is now program director at SEMA, the Syrian Expatriate Medical Association, and regularly trains doctors still in Syria, normally remotely, but from time to time, he crosses the border back into his home country. He says when he left Syria, he also left his career as a gynaecologist so he could focus on helping his country through humanitarian work. But like many displaced Syrians, he is holding on to the hope that he will be able to return to his home and the job he loved once the conflict has ended. He is also looking forward to a day he can show his children, who were both born after the war began, a Syria at peace. We always also uh, seek for space for our children. For example, I have two children uh, and both of them uh, have born uh, in 2013 and in 2018. So both of them know only that Syria is under war. Syria is under war. But always we are, uh, we hope and we wish to get better, inshallah. For the moment, however, peace is still a distant ideal. Doctors and healthcare staff are today risking their lives and battling on the front line to provide care to an increasingly vulnerable people in an exceptionally hostile environment. NGOs have labelled the humanitarian and human rights context in Syria one of the worst globally, with parties to the conflict disregarding civilian life by perpetrating human rights abuses and violating international humanitarian law. And the impact of this has been huge. Since the conflict began in 2011, nearly half of Syria's pre-war population has been displaced. That's 6.2 million internally and 5.3 million in other countries. Nearly three quarters of Syria's population are now in need of health assistance and 83% are living below the poverty line. To get a sense of the situation in Syria, I contacted human rights lawyer Len Rubenstein who chairs the Safeguarding Health in Conflict Coalition, a group of NGOs that work to report and highlight the attacks on healthcare in conflict zones. As, as the war continued uh, in 2018, as it continues now, the pattern of attacks, uh, deliberate attacks on hospitals uh, continued uh, in a really quite unprecedented way. Uh, we recorded more than 250 attacks in Syria in um, 2018. And there really is no historic precedent where a woman where um, uh, hospitals have been so thoroughly and apparently deliberately targeted uh, as in Syria. 
and uh, that has resulted in incredible death, incredible uh, suffering, and of course denial of health care to people, including people who are wounded by the very kind of bombings and and missile attacks that um, uh, are also inflicted on hospitals. To say the least, the conditions are horrendous, and they take a terrible toll on the doctors. Many of the doctors are themselves traumatized by the experience. They feel not only psychologically traumatized, but that because of the attacks and the destruction, they're not able to provide the kind of care that they've been trained for, either because there's been so much destruction in the hospital or the supplies can't reach them or because the need for services is too great. So they suffer moral distress as well as their own trauma. Uh, Over the course of the war, there have been a lot of efforts to put hospitals underground, to put them in caves, to protect them from uh, missile and aerial attacks, but that only goes so far. And uh, the difficulties of working in those conditions are really quite unimaginable. Uh, These uh, health professionals are doing remarkable work under terrible conditions. Len says one thing we really need to recognize is what he describes as the complete failure of the international community to do anything about the carnage in Syria. This is not new. It's been now the ninth year of the war, and the hospital bombings began seven years ago, uh, as well as attacks on civilians. This has been known, it's been amply documented, but there has been complete paralysis. Paralysis on a number of levels. Paralysis in the Security Council in Russia vetoing attempts to uh, refer these cases to the International Criminal Court. Paralysis in providing protection to uh, people in some ways through a no-fly zone or through other uh, kind of mechanisms. Uh, So we can't really uh, expect, unfortunately, Uh, any action now. And as we speak, there's a new offensive going on in Idlib. Hospital bombings have ratcheted up again as part of this offensive. And um, the international community simply has abdicated its responsibility. Declan Barry is an Irish paediatrician who worked with MSF in Syria in 2013 and found himself practicing in a converted chicken factory. In our call, he described a moment he just can't forget, even six years on. It was during a mass casualty event and a, a local a people in a local village and there were many coming in and yeah, I remember the team being very tired at this point. And I remember one of our a very excellent female staff, she was she just had to take a moment out. She was crying. There was a lot of tears during that period. But our translator, um yeah, it was his uncle who came in and he he was uh he he was what we called well palliative at that point, like we were we were not going to be able to save his life. And then trying and then I just I can still picture his face when I was explaining to him what was going on, he had to explain to the rest of his family and that his 
job was to be a translator. And this was his uncle. And he had to say to his family. And he's also still really worried about the rest of his family because he sees the people who come up to us. He doesn't know where's the rest of his family there. And so I can, I'm just, I can, yeah, when you ask me that question, I can just picture the fear in his face. And then he was given the duty of, yeah, being part of a medical team. And he was absolutely excellent. But during our discussion, Declan also echoed much of what Len described about the failings of the international community, and specifically Europe, when it comes to Syria and the health of its people. He had just returned from the island of Lesbos, Greece, one of the main ports for refugees trying to enter Europe, where he was coordinating an MSF team assisting those refugees. Declan told me their health needs are simply not being met. There are a phenomenal number of Syrian refugees who are escaping war and conflict and they have needs. And are they those needs being met? And I do not believe they are at all. So there's certainly what's happening inside the country of Syria, but there's also all the Syrians outside of the country. And they're a population that we as an international community can think about helping without being concerned for the, uh, the the danger or the, the conflict uh, being a threat to, to to us, and certainly my experience uh, recently in uh, in Greece is that we are failing in that in meeting that need. Europe has to stop denying the level why these people are coming to Europe. What are their needs? Um, and certainly what I have seen on the hotspots in uh, Greece is that uh, holding people in a containment setting there, pushing them into increased levels of ill health and suffering is being used as a tool of deterrence against more people coming. And for me, that is absolutely disgraceful. People's health and healthcare cannot be used as a tool of deterrence for uh, asylum seekers coming to the EU. Um, that is not a, a, a morally or an ethically or a medically acceptable use of uh, a way of deterring people. The, the level of mental health suffering I've seen on the island of Lesbos is the worst I've ever seen in my MSF career. And it's uh, very much uh, created by the policies and the living conditions. Um, yeah, it's really, really shocking what's happening out there and the level of denial that Europe tends to allow itself in, uh, in its role in creating this suffering. So if you're listening, wondering what can be done, obviously not every doctor can or may want to work in a conflict zone, and that is totally understandable. But Len thinks being vocal can really make a difference. I think the most important thing is solidarity. These are colleagues, uh, and there has, unfortunately, been a very small group of uh, people in the medical community who are raising their voices to try to bring attention to what's happening, to put pressure on their government, and simply to show these medics and doctors and nurses that their colleagues abroad really care about them. In my conversations with with doctors in Syria, it really mattered to them when they knew they had international support 
So the more uh, doctors in the UK and elsewhere speak up, communicate their concern, and put whatever pressure is possible, the better it will be. I have written more about Ferris, Len, and Declan in a feature called Thoroughly and Deliberately Targeted, Bombarded Doctors in Syria Hold On to Hope for the Future, which is now available on bmj.com. There you can also find our other content on the ongoing conflict in Syria. That's it for this podcast. I'll be back with more clinical stories, so subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You won't want to miss out on the next story. I'm Elizabeth Mahays. Thank you for listening.